0: Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. So, final episode of Season 1. We've done 18 amazing conversations with some of the world's most interesting and knowledgeable people in their subject areas. It's been a hell of a ride. And for today's episode, we're just going to take it easy. I'm going to tell the story of how we got here because we've never done that. I just jumped into the conversations without explaining why I was doing this or even who I was. So if you're interested in who the interviewer was, we're gonna I'm going to go into that a bit. I'm also going to talk about what I've learned from doing this series, and I'm going to give you a preview of what's coming up in season two. So this is just a little bit of downtime between some of the quite challenging conversations that we've had. If you have listened to all of Series 1 so far, then credit to you, because we put out a lot of content. And even if you've just tuned in for a couple of episodes, welcome. I hope this is interesting and it provides a bit of context to what we're doing here. I don't quite know how to introduce myself, so I'm not even going to try. But welcome to the final episode of Season 1, which is just a review and recap. did the Political Philosophy Podcast get started? I've actually never really talked about this that much. I've definitely got my own views in and debated the guests, but I've never really made it about me, and I've always been unsure if that was the right or the wrong decision. So I guess I can talk a bit about me and how we got started here, and if it's interesting, stick around, and if it's not, we'll have more guests on next week, so nothing really lost there. I guess my background to this was I definitely came from the political side, not the philosophy side. As you can probably tell by my accent, I'm a Brit, uh, but I'm living in America now. So after I did my MA in political philosophy, I moved to Boston. Um, Bit of a random jump, but I did it anyway. And I've spent about the last eight years working in campaigns uh, for the Democratic Party and for liberal advocacy groups. So I've worked for groups like HRC, the Gay and Lesbian Civil Rights Group, and I was actually really quite proud to have worked for them during the time that marriage equality passed the Supreme Court. I don't know what, if anything, my work contributed to that, but it was great to be a part of it. I've also worked for environmental campaigns like Environment America. Then a big bulk of what I do is I've worked on election work. I've worked on field work, knocking doors myself, organising teams of staff and volunteers to knock doors, and I've done a lot of races that way. I've lived in Miami, and I've lived more recently in New York since then, and I've done a lot of, like, I've run a few state senate races, I've been involved in a couple of gubernatorial races, I've been involved in a bunch of primary races, stuff like that, very hands-on stuff. And then... For the last four years, more or less, I've worked for Amnesty International, which is the world's largest human rights organisation, and again I'm roughly within the same remit of uh, field work, going out actually talking to people face-to-face. And I haven't really talked about Amnesty at all on the show, I don't want to, like, falsely represent them, and I should be clear, any views I express on the podcast are my own, not any of the organizations that I've worked for. So one thing immediately that would strike you from my bio is, unlike just about every other of the big philosophy podcasts out there, I'm not an academic, and in some ways I'm not super qualified to be doing this. In some ways I think I am. I think in applied politics I've probably talked to tens of thousands at this point, literally, of American voters and non-voters doing issue organizing campaigns, election campaigns, about political, about moral issues, about moral philosophy in some senses, although neither of us would probably have recognized it as such at the time. And so that's where I'm coming from with this, with a lot of my questions and a lot of the ways that I think about this. An interesting aside is I've seen a lot of hand-wringing recently in the sort of philosophy Twitter bubble, which is a thing I'm now apparently a part of, about quote-unquote public philosophy, about, like, how do we explain philosophy to the public? Should it be just us teaching the public, or crazy revolutionary radical idea maybe there is actually something that we meaning academics which again i'm not can learn from the public and in all of that hand-wringing i had this thought of well wait um whenever someone's been interviewed by me they are doing public philosophy in a sense in that they are interacting with um one of the lay people as it were i never did a phd i've um I actually have tutored a bit. I've taught um, some of this stuff to undergrad students, but that's as far down the road as I've gone with it. So is there something philosophers can learn? Well, yeah, I absolutely think there is. And I think when you have these sorts of interactions, like epistemic humility is so important on both sides. Epistemic humility is a phrase I keep using, by the way, which is just a fancy way of saying not always assuming that you're right, and not always assuming that you have all the answers. And indeed, when it comes to philosophy, not always assuming that you know how to get the answers, or not always assuming that you'd know the answers if you found them. And that's definitely something that I've taken to this show. I often, I think, come across as really opinionated and dogmatic, but I'm really not. Like, even with my most hardcore controversial views, I can tell you exactly what it would take to change my mind, and I can also tell you exactly how unsure I am of my own views. So take for instance my lack of belief in God. I use the word atheism for this, but that can be a controversial label. I think when I talk to religious people, they assume that my commitments are as implacable as theirs are, but no, actually. I, I can tell you quite easily what it would take to change my mind. Take something basic, the transubstantiation, the, the turning the, the blood into the body of Christ. Uh, 20 minutes in a chemistry lab would be enough to convince me of the truth of that. And not only would I accept it, I'd be enthusiastic about doing so. This would imply a whole new branch of biology a whole new branch of chemistry, possibly a whole new branch of physics. Whoever could prove this would win the Nobel Prize. It would be an incredible world-changing discovery. I would flip like that if someone could ever prove that. And that's very much the attitude in which I approach many of the debates we have about ethics and about political theory, is I'm saying, here's what I think I know, here's what it would take for me to say that I got it wrong. And, you know, if you believe something else, then why? And let's get to the bottom of it. But I'm always approaching every single conversation I have with the point of view that I might be wrong. And I think... Sometimes professional philosophers could stand to do the same a little bit, especially when talking to the, the public, who I think they often view in a a similar way to the, the Catholic Church priest's view the laity as someone to be instructed, which I think is absolutely wrong. And that's the view I've taken. But that's the view I've come to. So How did this podcast get started? You know, I've been working in fieldwork, in campaigns, in stuff that seemingly isn't that philosophical, although I would argue actually that it is, and a lot of the concerns we deal with on a day-to-day basis are philosophical concerns, although they wouldn't be recognised as such by either campaigners or philosophers, but that's getting ahead of myself. Um, had to start, I needed a hobby, and honestly, here's what's funny about this, and I talk about this on the Philosophy Bakes Bread podcast, which I'll be appearing on shortly. What's kind of funny about this is it happened by accident. I needed a hobby, and you'll laugh, or, well, you might not. Um, But I decided to do a cooking blog. This is my hobby. I like to cook. I won't claim to be a master chef, but I just thought it'd be fun to put a few recipes up and whatever. And as soon as I got into it, I realised how much work it was going to (laughs) be. I realised I was going to have to take pictures of food, which didn't particularly excite me. I realised I was going to have to, like learn how to do high-end photography and stuff, which wasn't exciting. And I kind of gave up on it. And then I thought, what about if I had a blog that talked about political philosophy? Because this is something I did for my degree. It's something I did for my MA. And it's something that I've followed since then. I still read a lot on my own time in history of political thought. I There's a lot of online lecture courses you can take. So, for instance, I recently interviewed Dale Martin because I'd taken his Yale Open course on the history of the New Testament strongly recommended by the way and there's a whole load that you can do and I've taken them on political philosophy history particularly history of political thought I think all of the big ones um from Yale or from other providers I've taken at this point over the last few years and like I say I also just read this stuff out of interest I think it's really fun So I decided I'd do a blog, and then I thought, well, everyone's doing podcasts, I'll do a podcast on political philosophy. And this seemed like a good niche to get into, because as far as I could tell, there was a few big philosophy podcasts, but there wasn't anything on political philosophy. There might be a couple of other things that are coming up around this time that are also coming into that territory, which I welcome, but I think when I started it, I was the only one. And then I thought, well... Who's realistically gonna want to listen to me just talk about stuff, you know, just by myself for an hour a week? And well, actually, I guess like the the listening figures we'll get on this podcast will be some indication of that. But I thought, oh, it might be fun to get a few guests on, and so I approached getting guests in the way that I do as a trained fundraiser, which is to overshoot. And I figured, you know, if I get really senior, you know, respected academics, maybe one in five will get back to me. So I just wrote a whole bunch of people who I thought would be interesting to get on, and I followed up when necessary. And basically all of them came on. A couple of people we couldn't work out of time or were busy or whatever, but instead of one out of five, I got four out of five. So I was expecting like one or two people to get back to me, and instead I ended up with like eight or nine. And then I had to arrange times. And then before I knew it, I was interviewing people. And I've, by the way, never interviewed anyone ever. And it took me a minute to find my feet with it. But then, with one conversation, I'll let you know it was Cecile Farb, who I, uh, Oxford professor of political theory, who, um, although I went to Oxford, I'd actually never met or interacted with at this point. I kind of had my structure of questions. And then I just gave up on them. And I started asking her stuff about intuition about the ultimate foundations of ethical theory that seem in, seemed interesting to me. And after a while, she gave up on the interview format too and started asking me questions. So at one point in this is in the first episode, in one point she asked me, I said, "Slavery' is morally wrong." And she said, "Is your epistemic confidence in that as great as your epistemic confidence that the earth is round? Well, okay. And if you want to hear how I responded to that question, that's episode one, sex work, organ sales, and intuition. Which I guess is the other thing about this podcast is we have not shied away from taking on some really controversial moral issues like... I mean, I think sex work is becoming a bit mainstream, but organ sales certainly is not. And I sort of found a conversational, argumentative style of interview that was just really fun to do and was kind of different to what other people were doing, which is I wasn't going on with the point of view of I'm going to ask you some questions. I was going on with the point of view of is what you're saying right? Why do you believe that? Let's get to the bottom of this. And I never approached it as a debate. That's one thing I will say about the style that I've been coming up with. I never viewed it as I am right, and I'm out to score points, but I did often view it as, I'm not sure why you're saying that. I'm not sure that the argument you're giving for that actually works in the way that you think that it works, and I'm gonna pick some holes in that, and I'm gonna work with that a bit to see if it really makes sense, and then I expect you in return to push back on what I'm saying, and with the view of having a disagreement, not to win or lose the disagreement, but to to try and get to some sort of truth, to try and either recognize the truth in what I'm saying and see my objections overcome, or find the holes in it and get to a deeper truth. And this is, again, I think, where epistemic humility comes in, and I'm going to talk about this a lot on the next season, of, like, what is the point of conversation? What is the point of disagreement? And I strongly reject the view that we all just have our own truths. You've you've heard people say this, you have your truth and you have mine. No, we have our lived experiences, we have our life's reality, we have the brain that the world made for us. But there is such a thing as objective truth and I think you can find it. But I also think that it's very, very complicated. And when it comes to moral philosophy, when it comes to political philosophy, and particularly when it comes to applied politics, you know there's likely going to be some things that are true in your opponent's view of the world and some things that are true of yours and the point of debating conversation is is almost in a dialectic way to find some sort of reconciliation there that doesn't mean that you're equally right or equally wrong but it does mean that you're very rarely a hundred percent right and that's that's the way that the i've approached these conversations so next big part of this episode is what have I learned from them because like I said I was just in these before I knew what I was doing and I had to just find my feet as an interviewer and it was great like it's been so fun and please do go out and check out the season one ones that I'm talking about because I think even if you're into philosophy podcasts you probably haven't had one done in a way that's quite as challenging and sometimes combative and sometimes frankly amateurish as this one. We're not here to present philosophy to the masses. I'm here from the masses to say that I think a lot of the things that are quite axiomatic in um, moral philosophy and political philosophy are wrong, and I think quite obviously wrong. And if if I'm wrong that they're wrong, I want to be told why, and I refuse to accept that I'm just too dumb to get it. I think I'm smart enough to understand what people are saying, even if I'm, you know, not a tenured professor or something like that, and I'm, you know, sometimes I'll absolutely agree with my guests and sometimes I won't. I will say I always, always, always try to be super respectful, but... That's, again, I'm respectful because I want to continue the conversation. I want to get to the truth. Not because I want to defer to people. So, what have I learned? I'm going to give you three things on which I've changed my mind through this series. One, and this is just a straightforward policy view, it's not as philosophical, although it comes from philosophical considerations, is universal basic income. I've always, I think, almost every serious moral and political philosopher will say, for different reasons, but will say the current state of inequality in our societies is unjustifiable. There might be a few I'm not thinking of, there's probably a few libertarians and stuff, but as I've said many times, I don't view libertarianism, at least in the pure Nozak sense, as an intellectually serious project, and I can maybe do an episode where I cash out that rather brute assertion. But I think consequentialists, just no matter what type of consequentialist you are, cannot defend current inequality. Kantians can't. I think virtue ethicists can't. Like, what sort of society do we want to live in? What sort of people do we want to be? And I guess I'd always sort of lazily accepted universal basic income as a good response to that, And I talked to Professor Richard Winfeld, who at the time was running for Congress, on a federal jobs guarantee platform. So in alternative to universal basic income, he favoured the idea that you would be guaranteed a job even lacking any qualifications or whatever, at a good middle-class income, which he defined as $20 an hour up. Now, you can quibble with the details of that, but he sent me a chapter of his upcoming book, which I read, and I did the interview with him. And we started by bickering about metaethics, which is something I do on the podcast, is I basically tell people that their foundational ethical convictions are wrong, and I... um await them to tell me why in fact i'm wrong and i think honestly for that part we may have been talking past each other a little but then the combination of reading the chapter in his book and just working through some of the issues with him in conversation was just a straightforward software upgrade on my brain i realized that I'd been wrong, completely, and honestly quite uncritically wrong. I think I'd just been thinking, well, obviously inequality is a problem, universal basic income, yay. And I I really think I'd been that unreflective on it. But, again, after reading his work and talking to Professor Winfeld, I just absolutely became convinced that a federal jobs guarantee was a much, much better solution. And if you want to check out that interview, please do so. The next thing on which I've not changed my mind, but definitely developed my views, is I think I've come to a coherent view on metaethics, which I coin a term. I'm sure I can't be the first one to coin this term, but I was um, talking to Tamla Summers of the Very Bad Wizards podcast. That's coming up in season two, by the way. And I coined the term pluralistic hedonism. Now, I'm sure I'm recoining a term someone else has coined elsewhere, But, I mean, if they haven't, I'm fucking claiming it because I love the term. But I've come to the view that basically the only source of value, either personally or in a moral sense between people, is conscious experience. So this is sort of a, this is hedonism. The only thing that matters is how things feel. And there are no independent sources of value. But I use the word pluralist hedonism because a lot of hedonists, so like Bentham comes to mind here, tend to just view it as there is pleasure and pain and a straightforward metric and everything kind of maps down to one thing or a few things whereas my view is there's many 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 different types of conscious experiences and they're not necessarily comparable to each other and that views definitely got more clear over the course of season one so when I first talked to Cecile Farb in episode one we talked about what moral intuition means and we talked about the ultimate source of moral value and I was much more cautious there than I would be now and then I talked to Roger Crisp the um, ethical philosopher again from Oxford University and I sort of fleshed out my own moral worldview to him and he raised some challenges made some distinctions and we sort of talked it over And then increasingly in the further episodes, I've come to a more philosophically radical position that the only conceivable things we could care about are what we feel, granting the necessary pluralism of what we do feel and what we could possibly feel. That is quite a radical view. It's quite different to most of the philosophers that I talk to, but I'm increasingly convinced that it's right and we've got some great conversations where I really get into it um, with some eminent meta ethicists in season two. And, you know, you can just listen to them and you can decide who's making the better points. Final thing that I've sort of changed my mind on is I've always been a lefty, like quite a hard lefty, and most of my lefty friends either express hatred for or embarrassment of the American Republic. And I'm increasingly coming to feel that this is actually a bit naive. That I don't think you can essentialize America. I don't think that you can say that America is one thing. And the conversation that was really, really useful to me in season one with, with uh, Zephyr Teachout, the law professor who ran for governor and is, in fact, as I'm recording this, running for attorney general of New York... And her account was, I'm a Langston Hughes patriot. And um, we talked about that a bit, and I went and I read Langston Hughes. And I think I've arrived at a more mature understanding of my relationship with the American Republic. I think what bugs me about both the sort of chest-thumping right-wing make-America-great-again patriotism and the sort of known Chomsky-Howard-Zinn America-hating of the left is they're both so backwards-looking. They're both focusing what they think was great about America or what they think is evil about America in the past. And they both make some good points there. America genuinely is a land of freedom. It also genuinely is a country built on the backs of slaves. And the fact that it's both of those things, by the way, isn't a coincidence. And I'm going to talk about that more in season two. But actually, I think love of anything is necessarily forward-facing. So Langston Hughes, who Zephyr Tichow quoted, says all that could be great about America but of course he's a black man in the 30s and he says America was never America to me. But I promise you the America I love will be. And that's I think the correct way to process patriotism and to process your feelings of attachment to a community or a country is you don't love it for what it was. That's silly. Did you love your wife when she was a baby? It's a silly question. Would you have felt the same way about her as a baby as you do about her now? Well, obviously not, right? You love people for what they are, and more than that, you love people for what they can be. My affection for America, my investment in it, and I, I, I fully admit that this investment is non-rational, it's emotional. My investment in America is, yes, I am emotionally committed to um a mythological version of the great things about america and i admit that it's mythological it's not real but i locate that mythology in the future not in the past my idealized form of america is is what i think america could be i think there is a path forward from where we are to a country which is genuinely moral and wise Whereas I don't think there's that same path forward for Saudi Arabia or North Korea or even, and I'll be controversial here, even the European Union. And the European Union, I think, shows you the dangers of not thinking properly about patriotism. Because I think there'll be some people who will say, so, so what? Like, you might feel patriotic. I don't. And that's fine, by the way. I'm just explaining how I feel. Other people might not feel that way. But I think when you look at the European Union... When you, when you look at Brexit, people are so angry about this, and they're so angry about it on both sides, and all of my liberal political friends are, are so invested in this, and are so angry about it, and don't get me wrong, I was against Brexit, but in a way that's clearly about something else. If we were just altering our trade deals in a similar way, without leaving the EU, they probably wouldn't care. And in fact, if Jeremy Corbyn was doing it as part of some socialist agenda, you'd probably be for it. No, it's the leaving of the EU, it's the symbolism that bothers you. And what's obviously happening is people have patriotic feelings about Europe, which they can't properly process because they can't acknowledge them to themselves. And the EU is in no place to process for them because it can't admit what it is. It's trying to be a state. It's trying, in fact, to be a modern-day empire, but without ever thinking seriously about the emotional attachments that people are going to invariably attach to the structures of which they're a part of. It's almost like two people who are having sex but not in a relationship, and are suddenly furious that the other person is now sleeping with someone else, but can't explain why, either to themselves or to the other person. And it's obvious as an outsider that you've caught feelings. And to my mind, it's equally obvious that the British left feel patriotically about the European Union, but they can't admit that to themselves. And so I actually think America does a much better job of managing patriotism and unity. You know, the, Brit- the, the, uh, the, the left in America always wants to say, well, if only we were Sweden. But Sweden is a, is a fraction of our size. The, the, the correct analogy would be to the EU a country of a similar geographic and population size. And if you look at that analogy, actually, America is doing a lot better than the EU. We're more stable, we're more structured. Granted, Trump is a just everything you would not want in a chief executive, but odds are the republic will probably survive him. The EU couldn't survive a democratically elected executive of any kind! And if someone like Trump came to power there, it would be the end of them, period. They might not even last with stable and competent governance because they haven't processed the emotional attachments that people feel about their countries. So I do in some ways consider myself an American patriot, and that has come out of um, Zephyr Teachout was particularly instrumental for me in this. Um thinking more clearly about our own non-rational emotional responses. And a final note on this is the American left clearly loves many things about the American republic. And I say the American po- republic, not the American state. I'm not talking narrowly about government. I'm talking about the total set of institutions and groupings and, and, and both the powerful and the many. That The total sum of the institutional arrangements in America. There's clearly many things that America-hating radicals love about the country. Equally, there's obviously many things that a so-called America-loving patriots on the right hate about America. And I think we could all stand to be a bit more nuanced and a bit more honest about how we think about that. So, universal basic income, pluralistic hedonism, and a mature patriotism. Those are the things I've got personally out of season one. I would love, love, love. Please do write me. I've, I've really enjoyed some of the comments and, indeed, criticisms that we've got so far of season one. Please tell me what you've got out of it. I would love, 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 love to hear from you. I don't know how many loves that was, but I would love it a lot. So, write me. Like, um... I really want to hear if you've changed your mind on anything because of these conversations. Or if you just think I'm boorishly wrong about some of this stuff, write me. So, that's how I did season one, how I got into it, and what I got out of it. What's coming up on season two? I'll make this real brief. I just want this to be like a layover episode. We're going to start at the beginning with the first philosophers. I'm going to be talking to... Peter Adamson of the Much Loved History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps podcast. And we're going to discuss and theorize and make some educated guesses about who were the first human beings to practice philosophy. Really interesting question. That's gonna be our first episode out next week. And then gonna talk to Greg Cusano, who is um an ethical philosopher, and we're gonna talk about the illusion of free will. And yes, folks, it is an illusion. We're gonna talk about that, what it means, and how we process it and move forward from there. And it's a two-parter. In the second part, I bicker with him about metaethics. I'm then gonna talk with Theresa Bejan of Oxford University. We're gonna start by talking about religion in early America, in the first American colonies, and essentially how you got tolerant societies built out of religious fanatics. In the second part, we're going to talk about what some of those things mean for us today. We're going to talk about things like civility, tone policing, how we have a conversation with people we think are racists and bigots. So all very, very topical stuff. I enjoyed that conversation a lot. Um, Then um, another high-profile guest, I'll be talking as mentioned with Tamala Summers of the Very Bad Wizards podcast. And we start... This is one of those conversations that just got away from us. We start, but I think in a really good way, we start talking about his latest book where he defends the idea of honour societies over the idea of um, a dignity-based culture. But then we get hung up on one idea, which is the idea of collective punishment. Really interesting, deep, difficult conversation. And then again, another two-parter. We start bickering about Metaethics. You may be noticing a theme here. But I think we, we actually sort of do get to the bottom of something between consequentialism and virtue ethics that I think is quite valuable, and I don't think either of us expected to get to. But that was a really valuable episode. Then we're going to do this huge three-parter with someone who I think is arguably the world's greatest living public intellectual, Orlando Patterson. He has one of my favourite ever books by any author, living or dead. Uh, freedom in the making of western civilization where he argues that our current ideas of freedom are quite unique to western history and exist precisely because of the outsized role that slavery has played in our history and we do a huge three-parter we start by talking about slavery in tribal and primitive societies we then talk about slavery and freedom in ancient athens we then talk about slavery in rome the Roman freedmen, Roman Stoicism, and the metaphor of slavery and Christianity, and how all of that shaped the intellect and the consciousness of the West, for better or for worse. That's a hugely exciting conversation. Those are the ones I've recorded as of me recording this, but I have a bunch more confirmed. I'm going to be talking about Machiavelli, transitional justice, about protest movements, and about romantic love which will be an interesting aside from uh, such a dark and difficult podcast. Um, I'm also looking to get someone on to talk about Marx and dialectical methods, and there's a few other irons in the fire that I have. But this is all really exciting. It's been a huge, huge project to put together. It's probably been hundreds of hours of my life between arranging the interviews, researching the interviews, recording them and editing them, which I'm still not fully done with... But it's been huge. So please do join us for that. And one final ask, if you're finding the podcast valuable, is if you got a couple of bucks, we'd love to have them. I'm suggesting a donation of $2 per episode or whatever feels right to you. If you can be more generous, please do be. This has been a huge, huge project. It's been really amazing. So if people who are liking it or excited for season two could help me out just to cover some of the hosting costs and equipment costs which is honestly you know what i'm using the budget for so far that would be amazing if we get a bigger budget then there's all sorts of exciting things i can think to do with the podcast but please do help out with that and a big 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 thank you to everyone who has supported the podcast so far the other way you can help support it is by sharing these episodes. We've recently, you know, we've grown to maybe a thousand social media follows, and then a a couple of thousand other followers on iTunes, RSS feeds, other sorts of uh, podcast listening mechanisms. That's really amazing, and it's almost all been organic. It's just people sharing it. So please do keep doing that. And yeah, just, it's as simple as a few clicks, but Everyone who's taken the time to do that, I'm really, really, really grateful for, that we now... My, my wife just referenced my audience, and it was kind of incredible that, I yeah, I have an audience. That's That's great, and we have an audience for something that is different, and is difficult, and is quite dark. We're not playing around with this. We are doing a grown-up, engaged set of conversations we're doing conversations that are challenging both to the interviewees and to the listener and that I honestly thought I was going to be the only person interested in and a lot of people have reached out to say that they liked it and you know maybe even make some criticisms here or there that's great please do write me please do keep sharing and if you can um, please do chip in the suggested donation of a couple of bucks but thank you to everyone who's done any one of those things I'm really excited to bring you season two. I'll be doing some promos of it. Probably the best single place to follow us is Twitter at Paul Phil Pod. I also have a Facebook page and a YouTube page. You can find all of those at our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. So if you're not subscribed, please do. It's great to sort of see who's following. And that's it. This was a little bit of a different episode. Um, hopefully, it gave you some context. And if you're not a fan of me just talking and, hey, wouldn't blame you, then we'll be back to our regular interviews next week. Until then, thanks for listening.